By Saturday a week ago, Sally and I were watching the Duke-North Carolina basketball game. And uh, for those of you that are North Carolina fans, Duke won. But anyways, we were watching the game. When it was over, ESPN immediately switched to something else. There was no break. There was no commercial. Suddenly, there were two, I guess you'd call them ladies, two women in this caged-in ring. And they were just wailing on each other. They were just beating the tar on each other. One gal would get the other gal down on the mat, and she was just punching her, and then she'd get out from under, and she'd flip over, and she'd get the other gal down on the mat, and she was punching her and punching her. It was um, amazing, kind of in a perverse way. I don't even know who won, but uh, anyways, um, I hadn't seen anything that great since I was in Logan Area Junior High School, and <laughs> it was ninth grade. I was on the bus getting ready to come home. And there were two gals, two young ladies going at it. They had two handfuls of hair, each of them. They were screaming at each other. They were kicking each other. And I thought, this is great. I haven't seen anything this great in a long time. I think Barb Weibel and Jeannie Johnson were there at the same time as me. I don't think it was them, though. No, I'm sure. I don't think it was. But anyways, as I watched that, those ladies, I thought, you know, that's kind of an illustration of life sometimes. Sometimes life throws you a sucker punch. Sometimes life wails on you. Sometimes you get knocked down, and then you get back up, and then you get knocked down again. Sometimes the blows come repeatedly, almost like you don't even know what direction they're, they're coming in. Because we live in a fallen world. It's not heaven yet. Someday it will be, if you know Jesus as your Savior. And um, life's like that. And that was David's life. If you study the life of David and you see him in his Psalms, that, that's why I love the Psalms, because David is so personal in the Psalms that he wrote. And we see that again in this Psalm, Psalm 27. Three times in this Psalm, David refers to my enemies. It seems as if David is asking, how long, Lord, will my enemies continue to come against me? Last Sunday, we looked at Psalm 13, and we asked the question, how long? And there, David was dealing with the duration of his trial. Here, David, I think, is saying how many. David is dealing with the diversity of his trials. Now, once again, we don't know the exact situation that's behind Psalm 27. We didn't know uh, the one behind Psalm 13, though we surmised it very likely could have been when he was running from Saul. This psalm's a little different. We just really, really don't know. We know that David fought many enemies when he was the king, and even before that. He fought the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Moabites, the Syrians, the Ammonites, just to name a few of his foes. We know that the Bible doesn't promise us an anxiety-free, trouble-free life. James 1-2 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. All different kinds of trials. And I only need to glance around this uh, auditorium this morning and know from my own life and many of your lives that that's a picture of our lives. There will be various and sundry trials we will go through. Now, if you were here last Sunday, in Psalm 13, we saw a definite progression. David started out, it was kind of morose, and then it ends with praises. You don't see that in this psalm. Um, David begins expressing his confidence in the Lord, as we'll see. But as he goes through the psalm, suddenly David begins to plead with the Lord. 
So this is a psalm in which David expresses both his faith and his fears. And David, as we see again, is very transparent. That's why I love the psalms, because David helps us to understand life. And it doesn't, you know, the Bible is a, a book of realism. It doesn't present life in some kind of pristine kind of way. No, it presents life as it really is. And so David truly lived his life knowing both his faith and his fears. So this psalm starts on a high note. David expresses his confidence in the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Now again, we see the Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, that's Yahweh, that's Jehovah. And that's the person that Jesus clearly identified himself as the Jehovah of the Old Testament in John 8, 58, when he said, before Abraham was, I am. I am the self-existent one. In fact, they were going to stone him when he said that because they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. God's covenant name for himself, Jehovah, who is indeed Jesus. Now, one of the characteristics when you study the Psalms is something called synonymous parallelism. Now, all that simply means is the psalmist will say one thing and he'll say the same thing in a little bit different way. And he does that for emphasis. So you see that in the first verse, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And they are essentially the same thing. This is the first time where you see light as a clear expression or symbol of God in the Bible. What happens when we trust Christ as our Savior? We are called out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light. The Holy Spirit enters into our very being. Our body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit when you know Jesus as your Savior. And so now we are children of light. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it is God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So light is a very wonderful emblem and symbol of God himself and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice how David expresses his confidence in the Lord. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? What he's saying is, the Lord is my stronghold. The Lord is David's stronghold in the midst of trouble. The word strength here means a fortified place or a defense. Now, this is military language, and we see this throughout David's Psalms because David was a man of war. He was a military man, and often he would use this kind of, of, of language. Psalm 18.2, another Psalm of David, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength, and whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Now, we understand that when David wrote, he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Though not all the Bible is about us, all the Bible is for us. And when we see passages like this of David as a saint in the Old Testament, we can surely apply this to our lives, that the Lord Jesus is our fortress. He is our rock. He is our deliverer. He is our strength. He's the one that we can trust in, no matter what life throws at us. Jesus Christ is the stronghold for the believer. And so David asked the question, of whom shall I be afraid? Paul asked the same question, essentially, in Romans 8, 31. What shall we say then? If God be for us, who can be against us? And the obvious answer is nobody. 
Because nobody's greater than God. Nobody's more majestic than God. Nobody's more powerful than God. And if you know Jesus as your Savior, God is surely for you. Now, what David does, he reaches into the past, and we don't know what particular situation he's referring to, but a past deliverance gives confidence when facing future trials. It was so with David. If you look down here at verse 2, when the wicked came, past tense against me, to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. Now, this is poetic language, but it's talking about actual facts in David's life. He's picturing his enemies pouncing on him like a wild beast ready to tear him apart. Though most of us will never actually face a situation like that, but still poetically, many times in life, situations seem to be that way in our lives. And so in some way in the past, the Lord had intervened to save David. And you could, if you know the story of David, you could pick a few places in David's history where this could certainly apply. Well, maybe we're not worried about wild beasts pouncing on us, but there is one ferocious enemy who's against us, and he's going around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and that's Satan himself, the enemy of our soul. And not just Satan. Paul says in Ephesians 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's a whole host of demons and the forces of hell around us that would pounce on us like a wild beast and metaphorically tear us to pieces if they were allowed. But of course... We also have God's holy angels, and we also have the promise of the Lord himself. But our struggle is no less real and no less intense spiritually than some of David's physical struggles. So how did David conquer his fear? He conquered it by faith. He looked back in the past and said, hey, here's how God delivered me. I know he's going to deliver me in the future. So when we're going through trials, when we don't know what to do, one thing we can do is go back and think about how God has delivered us in the past. Maybe you're in a situation where you just don't know which way to turn. You know, our church is in a situation where we're seeking a new senior pastor. Well, that's happened before. And you've seen God, we've seen God answer prayer time and again. And so that past confidence in the Lord will sustain us now looking forward by faith to what he's going to do in the future. Matthew Henry says, there is no fortitude like that of faith. Now notice what David does. He expresses his desire for the Lord, for the Lord. Look at verse 4. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire and to inquire in his temple. Now, we know that David lived in a time before the temple because Solomon built the temple, his son. There was the tabernacle, and both the tabernacle and the temple sometimes are referred to as the temple. So David's ruling desire of his heart is to know the Lord greater, to be in fellowship with the Lord. 
We may have expected David's primary desire to be one of peace, to be one of deliverance, to be one of deliverance from my enemies, from my adversities. And many times that's our desire, and that's not a wrong desire. But what we have to realize is that, like David, his constant desire was to have a sense of the Lord's presence. You know, sometimes we pray, may the Lord be with you, and and for a Christian, we might say, well, they don't need to pray that prayer because the Holy Spirit, God will never leave you, forsake you, and the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. But I think what often we mean is the sense of the Lord's presence. And I think that's what David is, is praying for. And notice what he says in verse 4, to behold the beauty of the Lord. He desires a greater appreciation of the Lord's goodness. This literally says to behold in it. Almost as if David is dwelling within the, the goodness of the Lord and he wants the Lord to help him to have a greater appreciation for the blessings that God is bringing into his life. The word beauty here means grace or splendor. It's more than just outward beauty. It's God's grace. It's how God is good to us. Think back in your life. Has God been good to you? I mean... I think everybody in here would say, uh, hopefully, if you know Christ is your Savior, God has been so good to me, and I don't deserve any of it. The goodness of the Lord is something to behold. He wants to abide in that grace. And we know Jesus is the clearest expression of grace and truth, John 1:14. We abide in Jesus, and as we do that, we begin to gain an appreciation of his grace of his goodness in our lives. That's what Jesus meant when he said in John 15, 4, abide in me and I in you. The word abide there in John means to be at home, to, it's a fixed, enduring state, to sense God's presence in a renewed way, I think is what David is praying for. Too often we come before the Lord with a focus on ourselves, not on the Lord. Do you realize as you study the tabernacle and later the temple, it was all designed to display God's majesty, his goodness, his greatness. And so I don't know that David is saying that I may just live in the tabernacle or dwell in the tabernacle, but I think he's using it as an emblem of the presence of the Lord. And notice that we should come before the Lord as earnest inquirers. Look at verse 4. And to inquire, and to inquire in his temple. Spurgeon said, we should make our visits to the Lord's house inquirers meetings as to the will of God and how we may do it. Certainly we come here as we worship together. There's something about public worship and worshiping with others of like faith. And there's a bond here that only the Holy Spirit could create. It's, it's nothing the world can imitate. It, it's just a sense of belonging and connecting. And, and as we praise the same Lord and Savior together... We also should come intent on learning more about him, learning more about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because like David, David's security is in the Lord, and that's our security. If you look at verse 5, for in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. David did not expect a trouble-free life. He doesn't say, in case trouble comes, but in the time of trouble. And we know that we don't, aren't promised a trouble-free life. God never said we won't have adversity, we won't have sickness, 
We won't see death of loved ones in our life. He never promises us a trouble-free life. But he does promise to sustain us. He does promise to care for us. You know, in David's day, when he went out to war, the, the king's pavilion, the primary tent of the king, would be placed in the center of the forces. His army would be around his pavilion. And David even alludes to the tabernacle here as into the holy of holies. Not that he... He knows he can't go in there. Only the high priest could go in there once a year. But he's using it as an emblem of God hiding me, of God taking care of me, of God drawing me to himself. Because he is his security is in the Lord. And David uses the illustration of a high, put me high upon a rock. He envisions the Lord as an impregnable position that the enemy cannot assail. And that's certainly true even in our day, for our Savior, for our Lord. Psalm 62, two, he only is my rock and my salvation. He's my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. You know, the imagery of the rock in the Old Testament is specifically connected to Jesus in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 10, 4, and that rock was Christ. And then here you see David's faith shining through because David is anticipating the Lord's deliverance. Look at verse 6. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. I love the fact that David loved music. David loved music. He's the sweet singer of Israel. And David was a musician. And David was the one who wanted to bring in the the different people to praise the Lord when the temple would be built And so David here talks about the fact that God is going to deliver him out of his trials. And as he went through these trials, that he was going to draw closer to the Lord. You know, greater adversity brings us in closer fellowship with the Lord. When everything's going good, we tend to get a little spiritually sloppy because that's just the way we are. But boy, when adversity comes, then we really learn how to pray. Then we really learn the the importance of people praying for us, and we draw closer to the Lord, and we seek him in a way that often we don't before. Wearsby says, the secret to David's public confidence was his private obedience. He took time to fellowship with the Lord. Do you know another principle I see in this, that many dangers are avoided by an obedient walk with the Lord? Young people, if I could give you a piece of advice this morning is be where you're supposed to be. Be with whom you're supposed to be with whom. Because many times, that's what gets people on the wrong path. Proverbs 4.26 says, Ponder the path of your feet. Let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. Many a person has fallen prey to temptation because they were in the wrong place, they took the wrong step, and they're with the wrong people. And you need to protect yourself. And I'm just not talking to students here and young people. We adults need to learn this, and we need to be reminded of this as well. And maybe someone in here is getting ready to take a wrong step in the wrong direction with the wrong people. And you're going to be stepping into all kinds of adversity. You know, sometimes our trials and adversity come because we live in a sin-cursed world. And we dwell among other sinful people. Sometimes it's because of our own sin. It's because of our own mistakes. Certainly true of David. 
Sometimes he got, you know, he was running from Saul, and that's because Saul was an ungodly man. But other times David committed sin, and he reaped what he had sown, and he suffered because of it. And so it's important that we understand and obey God's word. Proverbs 13, 15, I've used this verse many times in counseling. Good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. The way of the unfaithful is hard. You want to go down that way? You want to walk down that path? Everybody that's going down that path, they've ended up in a hard place, but you think you're special? You think that's not going to happen to you? Don't be a fool. The way of the transgressor is hard. And then David reveals something. In verse 7, the mood of the psalm suddenly changes. It's not like Psalm 13 where you start low and you start building up to praise. He started out praising the Lord, and now suddenly, verse 7, he reveals his struggles with his emotions. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. Now, some of you have a, the word when in your text, but it's not there in the original. Note the phrases are short, to the point. Suddenly, David now starts crying out to the Lord. And isn't David so like us? It's almost like he's forgotten what he's just written. Do not hide your face from me, verse 9. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me. Isn't it amazing how we can go from the heights of faith to the valley of despondency just like that? Because we are, we are human and sometimes our emotions get the better of us. And so David has been expressing his faith and now suddenly David is down in the valley of despair almost. How frail we are. Apparently, God wasn't bringing about David's deliverance. Apparently, God wasn't answering David's prayer quick enough. Hear me, Lord. God had called me in the ministry years ago, and I resisted. And then when I finally surrendered, it was in 1976, and we were attending Grace. Sally and I, we had our two children so I left a job I really liked, and we sold our house and moved to uh, Lynchburg and went back to college. I don't um, encourage any young people here to do this, but I crammed four years of college into 12. <laughs> I, I wouldn't do that if, if I were you. I graduated from high school in, in um, when did I graduate from high school? 70, what, honey? 68, thank you. Graduated from high school in 68. You wonder why I'm retiring? <laughs> Graduated from college in 1980. It's 12 years. But anyways, went back to Liberty and, and uh, went through three and a half difficult years, but great years, and then graduated. So now I'm like, okay, Lord, I left my job. I am here. I've got my education. I'm ready to go. And um, you need to find me a place to, to preach. So we used to take a, uh, a map of the United States. I, I struggled with the whole mission call and really felt God wasn't calling us to missions. And so then we put a map of the U.S. above our bed. And I don't know if they still have those things, but we used to take those little white circle things, you know, with the sticky on it. If you have a three-ring notebook and the pages tear and you stick that on. So we, we'd hear about a, a potential place and we'd stick it on the map and we'd pray about it. 
And I was getting really frustrated. I was like, oh, poor me. I love my job and I love my family and I came down here and, you know, I'm all ready to go and you don't have a place for me. Actually, looking back, it really didn't take that long for God to send us where he wanted us. But I was like David. I was like, come on, God, you're not answering my prayer. Come on, I'm all, I've gotten prepared. I'm ready. And sometimes we're like that, aren't we? God, you're not answering fast enough. You're not answering in the way that I think you should answer. And I think that's where David was. So how does David deal with his anxiety? How do we, what do you do when you don't know what to do? David is a great example. He deals with his anxiety through prayer. Look at verse 8. When you said, he's praying to God, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. It's so likely David had a recurring sense of danger certain times in his life. That was certainly true. God had instructed the righteous to pray. It was sort of a plural instruction, if you know what I mean. He instructed his people to pray. And now what David does, he, he makes it personal. And that's good to do that. We see certain commands in Scripture where there are commandments to all of God's people and then we personalize them. And so that's what David does. Your face, Lord, I will seek. See, David was truly a man after God's own heart. And David took his anxiety to the Lord. And David cries out to the Lord from his innermost being. Don't hide your face from me, verse 9. O God of my salvation. That's why at 8 o'clock on a Saturday, we, many of us come out here and we pray. We're seeking the Lord's face. We're asking God to send the right man and the right family here to lead this church. We're confident he's going to do that. Say, why would David pray, don't, don't in essence, put me away? Because remember, the king before him was Saul, and God put Saul away. But that was because of Saul's disobedience. What David is doing, he's declaring his complete dependence upon the Lord. Verse 10, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Very likely, that's a proverbial expression in David's day. There's no indication in Scripture that his parents ever did forsake him. Though we do know down through the ages, there have been many believers who have trusted Christ and simply because they name the name of Christ, their family has disowned them or forsaken them. Still happening today in many parts of the world. I think also what God is showing us is that his love for his children is even greater than parental love for their children. I know how much I love my children. I know how much I love my grandchildren. Yet I have to realize God's love for me is so far greater even than that natural love that I have for my wife and my family. You know, we are commanded to take our anxieties to God, and we do that through prayer, Philippians 4, 6 through 7. And if we will do that, the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. David longs to be and to have the sense of the Lord's presence returned to his soul. You know, if you read literature from Christians in, in earlier generations, a lot of them called that praying through. Praying through, do you get an answer? Praying through, do you sense the Lord's guidance? And I think that's what David is expressing. And now we see David who seeks the Lord's direction. This is so appropriate for us as a church. And it's so appropriate for some of you that are struggling with what, which way should I go? What choice should I make? What should I do? I don't know what to do. 
Verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. In the midst of adversity and trials, David cries out for guidance. A smooth path. Take the obstacles out of my way. Direct me. Show me which way to go, Lord. Psalm 50, verse 13. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. That's a great verse. Claim that promise. You know, do you realize God has given us a map? This is a map. This is God's word. Every word is true. No error. No falsehood. This is a reliable, a map more reliable than any map that you could ever find. He's not only given us a map, the word of God, he's given us a guide, the spirit of God. So you take the word of God and then through the spirit of God, and as we meditate on God's word and memorize it and obey it, and then the Holy Spirit within us gives us that sense of confirmation and gives us a sense of direction and peace, David is praying for that. Proverbs 4.18 says, The path of the just is like the shining sun. It shines ever brighter to the perfect day, but the way of the wicked is like darkness. They don't even know what makes them stumble. I've seen people who depart from the Lord and their life is just one train wreck after another. And they're like, it's like, well, that's what the Bible says. You're going you're gonna to follow the way of darkness and disobedience? You're going to continually stumble. doesn't mean that we're not going to have trials when we follow the Lord. But it's like our lives get brighter and brighter. And one day, boom, we're in the Lord's presence experiencing his glory. David not only asked for direction, and I think this is significant. David asks again for the Lord's intervention. Verse 12, do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me. And such as breathe out violence, you know, we live in a culture where that is true. It's going to become truer as we move through this culture, except apart from a real Holy Spirit-sent, heaven-sent revival, culture is becoming darker and darker, more anti-Christian, anti-Christ. So David is, in essence, asking for wisdom. How do I deal with these enemies that are coming against me? But again, David's faith shines through. Verse 13, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So what you see is David working through his anxieties, David working through his fears, David being very honest, and, and David never, cl- I got it all together. You know, I, 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 and none of us, if we ever claimed that, that's just pride. We don't have it. I don't have it all together. We are searching. We are striving to follow the Lord, to be obedient to him. And at times we might step or veer off the path and then we confess and come right back. But the Lord will, has promised us his protection, his guidance, his intervention in our lives. And so David's confidence just continually grows as he focuses upon the Lord. Verse 14, wait on the Lord Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. This is the sum of the psalm. This sort of sums up the psalm. Now, the word wait here is not passive waiting. The word wait here means eager anticipation. It's patient anticipation, 
but it's eager anticipation as well. David is sharing his emotions. He's sharing his struggles. That gives greater force to this wonderful conclusion. Spurgeon says, wait at his door with prayer, wait at his feet with humility, wait at his table with service, wait at his window with expectancy. We are to wait in anticipation of what? God's working on our behalf. We as a church are waiting for God to reveal who the next senior pastor will be. And so we're waiting, hopefully, with eager anticipation. As we pray for God to send this man and his family to us, what new vision will the Lord bring with this new pastor? What new ministries will he want to develop? What new direction will he lead this church? I'm excited for the future of Grace Bible Church, and I hope you are too. You know, God always has answered the prayer here at Grace. God has always provided a man to stand in this pulpit who will preach the gospel and preach the word of God and lead this church where God wants it to go. And I have every confidence that God is going to do that again. So we wait in anticipation. So what do you do if you don't know what to do? I said this last week. You do what you know to do. You do what you know to do. Some of you are waiting for an answer. Some of you are waiting for direction. Some of you are at a crossroads and you're you're trying to decide right or left. Maybe it's not an issue of right or wrong. It's just an issue of, God, which, which way do you want me to go? You don't know what to do. Do what you know to do. That's what David did. He called upon the Lord. And then he trusted the Lord and he waited on the Lord knowing that God would ultimately deliver. And God did for David time and time again, and he will for you, and he will for Grace Bible Church. 